But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scriptures tell us, the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, Adam, we will someday be like the heavenly man, Jesus. Well, in 2009, we went to Egypt, to the pyramids and the great Sphinx. Some of you are familiar with that. I remember when I first, first was aware of Egypt, I think it was in grade five, and I was absolutely amazed, captivated by it. And I, did, I asked the teacher if I could do a project on it, and he said, well, nobody's doing any projects on anything. <laughs> But I said, I, it's so fascinating to me. I want to try to do something and learn more about it. So I did. And then finally, we had the privilege of actually going there. And when we got off the tour bus at the pyramid, uh, Nicholas immediately went missing. And we were surrounded by Egyptians trying to sell us trinkets, little pyramids and sphinxes and, and whatnot. And I began yelling Nick's name, and I had a sense of panic and, and anger come over me. Where is he, and what could he be doing? And then suddenly, around the corner came Nicholas riding on a camel. <laughs> An Egyptian had actually grabbed him and put him on the camel, and then expected that when he came around the corner, I'd pay for it. But I was so angry that they, they kidnapped my son. I said, Nicholas, get off that camel. And the Egyptian knew he'd better take off with his camel. Well, that was my first memory of Egypt. But my second memory of Egypt was, was the pyramid. And it was in this pyramid, we were able to crawl down into the chamber where the pharaoh was buried. It was, it's really a, a fascinating experience. And I don't know if you can even still do that, but we did that in 2009. This pyramid was built about 5,500 years ago, and it was built for the pharaoh Khafre. Now, from the beginning of recorded history, people have been obsessed with death and dying and especially the afterlife. Every culture, every religion, every race, they are dealing with this subject. People are, are fascinated by it, but even more than that, they wanna know what's next, what happens when we die. And many people are fearful when they die because of course they don't know what's gonna happen. 
This is the wonderful thing about Christianity is it explains to us what's going to happen. And so today, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna answer some more questions about what happens after we die. So the thing that, that you see about the Egyptians is that their architecture and, and their literature and uh, so much of their, their time and money and their labor was involved in building tombs and places for people to go when they died. We, we do embalming here in Canada now when our loved ones die, but they've been doing that for 5,500 years, trying to preserve the body because in the Egyptian mind, the body, if it wasn't preserved properly, would not be able to live on into the new world. So the Egyptians, they believed that the soul could live only if the body was preserved and, and remained uncorrupted. Well, we've seen mummies that they have been able to uh, unearth, and we see that, although you can see it's a human being, there's not much left of them. I mean, if that's how I have to look after I die, <laughs> I don't know if I wanna live again. But here's the thing, folks. Archaeologists are finding burial mounds and, and, and places where people have been buried for, well, for, for 10,000 years. It's, it's just incredible. So we as humans have always cared about that. Unlike animals who obviously don't want to die, but when they die, it's, that's the end. You don't see them contemplating what happens when I die. That's humans that do that. Why? Because we've been created in the image of God. And death is not something that is natural to us. It's something that is unnatural. It was not part of God's original design. And so we're gonna look at that today. What happens when we die? And again, this is why we need Bible doctrine. This is why we need the scripture. This is why we need to go to the scripture. We need to be familiar with the scripture. So many people don't have a clue of what happens when they die because they simply don't know what the Bible has to say. And again, this is why we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15. I see a lot of you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 15. That's good because we're gonna be reading uh, from there in just a moment. But look at, look at the question. This is, this is what the Corinthians were asking. How will the dead be raised? And what kind of bodies will they have? This, these are the questions we're gonna answer today. How will the dead be raised and what kind of bodies will they have? Now, all religions, as I said, all religions and cultures, they have some sort of, of teaching or understanding about what happens after death. Some of you may be familiar with Marvel Comics and they've produced uh, a number of interesting uh, stories based on Norse mythology. And so in Norse mythology, Norse belief, that Scandinavian belief, they believe that when a person dies, they go to a place called Valhalla, Valhalla in Asgard, and Asgard is governed by Odin. Anybody watch the Marvel comics? If you, if you, if you saw any of those movies, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. This comes from, from Norse mythology. This idea of an afterlife is common to all religions and to all cultures throughout the thousands of years of recorded human history. It's very interesting. But only Christianity gives us clear teaching and a clear understanding 
The other religions are very, very vague about what happens when you die. But with Christianity, we know exactly what happens when we die. We know exactly how we will live eternally. We know what it takes to live eternally. It's brilliant. There's nothing like the Christian teaching on life after death. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic, you'll believe in purgatory. It's a place that some would call limbo. You're not in heaven, you're not in hell, but you're kind of in a waiting place. And uh, if you're smart enough to buy some indulgences or if you're smart enough to have kids who will buy indulgences to spring you out of purgatory, you go right to heaven. Uh, And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why Martin Luther rose up against the Roman Catholic Church, saying that we have to stop this, this false teaching. It's not in the Bible. Well, it turns out that it's not just the Roman Catholics that believe in a state of limbo. And you understand what I mean by limbo. We're neither here nor there. It's somewhere in between. It's a, it's a neutral state or a state of waiting. In, in Iranian religion of Zoroastrianism, they have a concept called Hamastagan, and it too is a place of waiting. Now, this is an ancient religion. It go, again, it goes back at least four to 5,000 years. And again, nothing new under the sun. We, we keep talking about what happens when we die. Now, some believe in eternal oblivion. That is, you cease to exist. Once you die, there's nothingness. It's the idea of one's consciousness forever seizing upon death. Scientists say that they can find no mechanism to continue consciousness after death, and so therefore, there is no life after death. How many know that science does not answer all the questions? Everybody understands that? We have turned science into an idol, and some people, it is everything. It's it's their religion, and it really is a, a type of religion because they say that only science can answer all those questions. There's so many things that science cannot answer, especially when it comes to things that are metaphysical. Now, this concept of of eternal oblivion or nothingness, this is almost always associated with, with humanists, with religious skepticism, and atheism, people that don't want to believe in God. And here's what I find so intriguing, is that people who don't believe in God, the religious skeptics and the atheists, they get so angry at us for believing in God. If you don't believe in God, that's fine, but why would you get angry at us for believing in God? If there's no such thing as God, what's the big deal? But obviously, something in the back of their hearts, in the back of their mind, is not comfortable with this concept or this idea of nothingness, of eternal oblivion. And they're trying to shut us up because when we talk about life after death, when we talk about making sure that we are right with God, this convicts them. It makes them feel angry. It makes them feel insecure because in their hearts, they know that there is an eternity. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. He says that that eternity is born in our hearts. We know that there is an eternity. So Paul helps the Corinthians understand then what happens after we die. The Greeks believe, and this is, the Corinthians are Greeks, and this is probably what they believe. The Greeks believe that there was a section of Hades that would be kind of that, that, 
no man's land, a waiting place for the dead. They believed that a section of Hades was known as the fields of Asphodel, which was much like limbo. And they believed that the vast majority of people who were held to have deserved neither the Elysian fields, which is heaven, or Tartarus, which is hell, would have been waiting in this place, this place called limbo. They had no idea or no concept, no teaching in their culture about an eternity. And so along comes Paul, who teaches them this idea of the resurrection. This would have been absolutely mind-boggling. This would have blown their minds. They believed that Jesus was resurrected, but for themselves, that's not part of their heritage. That's not part of their culture or their religion. They never, nobody ever told them that. But Paul comes along and he answers the question. He answers the question, how the dead will be raised and what kind of bodies will they have? Now, do you remember back in the Garden of Eden, God warned Adam and Eve. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. You remember that? There were two trees. There's a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Adam and Eve, as you know, I won't get into this too much, but Adam and Eve disobeyed God. We call, what do we call disobedience to God? We call it sin. It's sin, isn't it? So here's the thing. Here's where the world religions agree with us. They agree that we, as humans, have the capacity to do good, but more likely to do evil. That's where the world religions agree with us, and that's about it. After that, we take a, a, a sharp turn from one another, and this is where world religions will try to come up with, with an answer to these questions, and they're bizarre, bizarre answers, but Christianity is very, diff very definite about what it is that we believe. So Paul says, he says, you f whoops, what happened there? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So here's the thing. Um, we, we understand that because of our sin, because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and because of the disobedience that we inherited from Adam and Eve, we will in fact die. But that's not where it stops. And it's important for us to understand that although we must all die, for a Christian, it's nothing to fear. Fear not, my friends. Be not afraid. Did you hear that? Don't be afraid of death. We're all gonna die. But if you're a Christian, you have nothing to fear. If you're not a Christian, well, now that's a different story. And in a moment, I'm gonna tell you what it means to be a Christian. But first understand this, as believers, we are going to die physically. Did you get that? It's a physical death, it's not a spiritual death. We are going to die, but we don't need to fear it. Most religions talk about this idea of the good that we do being weighed against the bad. There's like a scale, and God gets out the scales and 
and, and weighs it and says, oh, look at this, Alan, he's done more good than bad. He, he gets in. <laughs> oh, look at Chris. Oh, he's just more bad than good. <laughs> no, I, it's probably the other way around. Uh, <laughs> the, it's what Islam believes. Islamic belief in the afterlife life has a, a paradise and a hell. And your level of comfort while you're in the grave will depend on how much good you did in this life. It depends on your level of iman or faith in Allah. To achieve excellent iman, that is excellent faith, one must practice righteous deeds or else your level of iman, your level of faith, will choke and shrink and eventually can, can wither away, especially if you do not practice Islam long enough. So look at this. Practicing Islam, doing good works, is equal to good deeds. So just practicing the religion, making sure that you pray five times a day, make sure you're, you're, you're praying in the right direction and so on and so forth. If you do all of that, that's considered good deeds. Now, if you have just become a Muslim and you haven't been a Muslim long enough and you're worried that you haven't been a Muslim long enough and therefore doing a lot of good deeds, you can make up for that. And then what you do is you repeat glory to Allah over and over and over again. In fact, they've got a counting system where they can count how many times they say it. If you keep saying it as much as you can, this in Islam will determine whether or not you will spend your time in the grave in a good way or in a bad way. Now, exactly what all that means, I don't know, and I don't think they really know either. But it's not what we believe. We have very clear instructions from Scripture very clear ideas of what it is. So Paul, Paul tells us, and he's quoting Isaiah 64, verse 6, tells us in Romans 3.10 that, the, that, that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So it doesn't matter how many times you say glory to God, glory to Jesus, glory to, to Alan, <laughs> glory to whatever, it, it doesn't, it's not going to count. It's not going to get you into heaven. It's not going to, there's no scale. Because if you, if you just did one little thing wrong, the Bible says that you may as well have broken all the commandments. So your, your righteousness, the Bible says, is this filthy rags. You can't earn your way with God. You can't earn your way into heaven. You can't earn brownie points, as it were. You can't say, you know what? I got a lot of good points in heaven. How many people have the points card? I've got one for my gas. You can get it for your, your credit card. You can get points for shopping, points for everything. But you can't get points for going to church. You can't get points in Christianity. It doesn't work that way. No. Our righteousness is never going to get us into heaven. Does everybody understand that? And I hear a lot of people say, I'm a good person. I, I'm sure I'm going, I'm sure my grandma's going to heaven. She was a good person. I'm sure that, you know, I come from a good line, good family, good heritage. I'm sure that our family will be in heaven. Uh-uh, that's not how it works. And this is, by the way, it is insulting to a lot of people. Some people find what I'm saying extremely offensive. How dare you call me a sinner? I know people who call themselves Christians today but have not yet been able to admit that they are sinners. 
This is something that we struggle with. In fact, it took me a long time to understand this concept. I was, I was 30 years old or 30, 32 years old before I, I really began to understand this idea that we, every one of us, is a sinner. You see, I was a pretty good teenager. I was a pretty good kid. I mean, I, I, I've never been drunk in my life. I've never been stoned, never took drugs, didn't do any of that stuff. Now, I thought I was a pretty good person. And, and lived under that notion, that idea that I must be one of God's favorites because I was such a good kid, I was such a good guy. And then God began to show me the true condition of my heart and the true capacity for sin that I have. And as some of you are sitting here thinking, who is this man preaching to us? I thought he was much better than that. Well, before you get too uppity, remember I'm looking at you too. And you too are sinners in need of God's grace. The only way that you can truly be converted and understand the need of Jesus Christ is by understanding your own capacity for sin. So there's nobody in this room today that can say, well, I'm better than the rest. No, we're more likely to say what the Apostle Paul said, I'm the worst of sinners. But here in North America, for some reason, especially in our churches, we like to say, well, I'm the best Christian. And Paul said, I'm the worst sinner. Think about that. We need Jesus. We need a savior. And God understanding and knowing that we didn't have the capacity to earn our way into heaven sent his son Jesus. Jesus who came, watch this, to destroy the powers of sin, the power of death, which we're gonna talk more about next week, and the power of Satan. That's why God sent his son. But not just to conquer the power of sin, death, and Satan, but to reconcile us to God so that we could come to God with our prayer requests and our needs. You'll notice that when, often when I'm praying, I'll say, God, thank you that we can come to your throne with all of our petitions and prayer requests because Jesus made it possible. You see, we can't come before God on our own, according to our own ability or our own righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ. Does everybody understand that? If you don't have the righteousness of Christ, you have, you have no business before the throne of God. You have no business asking God for anything. But because of what Christ did for us, we have that liberty, that freedom to come to the Father with our prayer requests, with our petitions and our needs. Someone say hallelujah. Wow. So Jesus comes and he conquers Satan, all the powers of darkness, and Jesus restores our relationship to the Father. What was broken in Eden, Jesus Christ restored on the cross. By the way, that's why we call this Cross Church. This is a place where you are gonna learn what it means to have a restored relationship with God. Listen to what Paul says to the Colossians. This is so powerful. Paul says, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. Did you know that? When you were, when you were baptized, you're being buried and you're rising again to new life in Christ. That's the symbolism there. And Paul says, and, and with him, with Christ, you were raised to new life. Because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. If you're following along your Bible, you should mark this passage, Colossians 2, 12 to 15. 
You trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. This is what we do. This is what we do when we become Christians. We're trusting that God raised Jesus from the dead. Remember, we said that you are saved when you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, verse thirteen says, "You were dead because of your sins." That's what brought death to us: is sin. Do you know that we would not have died? Adam and Eve were not intended to die. But because of their sin, they died. You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. Did you get that? It's when, when God forgave all our sins that we came alive. Now, how does that work? Well, you're putting your faith in the righteousness of Christ. You're not depending on your own righteousness. Anybody here think that you can depend on your own righteousness? Well, good luck. Because that's what a lot of people are doing. They think, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> pretty, pretty easy standards to get into heaven. Most of us have never killed anybody. At least not physically. <laughs> in our heart and in our mind, maybe. But Paul says, you're alive in Christ, because you've literally put on the righteousness of Christ. Did you get that? You're trusting in the righteousness of Christ. There's an old-fashioned word that we don't use anymore, the word propitiatory. Jesus Christ is a propitiatory shelter or covering. He covers us. He, he protects us against the wrath of God. You say, I didn't know God was a God of wrath. Of course he is. Read your Bible. In fact, it says right at the beginning of Romans that we are, we are born enemies of God. But when you put your faith in Christ, you suddenly have got this shield, this propitiatory shield, this protection. And now you are safe in the presence of Almighty God. It's a beautiful picture, people. Paul goes on to say in verse 14 that, that Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Look at, this, look at me, everybody. Listen, you think about the sins that you've committed. Think about them. One of the things that used to terrify me when I was a kid, I was just a kid. There's a, there's a little chick track, little chick, his name was Chick, his last name was Chick. He made these little tracks. And on, in the track, it showed, it showed God standing beside the person who just, who just came to the throne of God for judgment. And then, and then God has got this projector that shows all of this person's sins being, being running like a movie on the wall. The idea that, that anybody would ever know or see my sin was absolutely terrifying to me. Well, the good news is it's not going to happen like that. At least if you're a Christian. There, this is what it says here. Jesus canceled the record of the charges against you. All the things, all the evil you've ever done, it's been canceled because Jesus Christ nailed it to the cross. It's gone. There's no record of it. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far it has been removed from you. In this way, oh, I love this. In this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. 
That is what Jesus Christ did for us. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. We have to die. This physical body needs to die because that is the judgment against us. But the good news is, once you're born again, your spirit doesn't die. It has come to eternal life. This is the gospel that we are commanded to proclaim. Now look at this. I just want you to see something. Because a lot of churches don't, don't preach this anymore. They don't proclaim this anymore. They, it's more like, a, it's more like a, a how-to lecture. How to do this and how to do that and how to succeed at this and how to have a great marriage and how to have a great family and how to be a great boss and how to make lots of money, how to succeed in life. That, my friends, is not scriptural how to follow your dreams, how to have a great vision, and how to see your vision come true, and God wants to see your dreams come true. There's nothing in Scripture that could support such ridiculous teaching. No, the, 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 your problem, the problem of every human, is our sin. If you've got problems in your marriage, it's because one or both of you is extremely self-centered. More likely both, I, I've never seen it totally one-sided. It takes two to tangle. And all the married people said, there's a few honest people there. (laughs) That's our problem. It's our sin. It's our sin that needs to be put to death, that needs to be dealt with. And it's for this reason, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must what? Deny yourself. Not serve yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's the reason you've you got problems. It's because you have not yet learned how to surrender or to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us know him as our Savior, but we don't know him as our Lord. We submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul makes it clear to us. Now, we do have to die, but that's just the physical death. Spiritually, we remain alive. And someday, as you heard last week, we will be given a new resurrection body. We'll talk more about that in just a second. What kind of bodies will we have? Now, can I just tell everybody something right here in case you don't know it? There is no resurrection. There is no reincarnation. There's only a resurrection. Do you understand that? There is no reincarnation. This is what Paul says. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed his own body. In Hinduism, they have what is known as Svaragaloka, for those who have completed their cycle of reincarnation, which can go on and on and on and on maybe for thousands of years. And in their belief system, you'll come back as a bug or come back as a cow or maybe come back as a human. But if you have learned over all of these reincarnations to to learn to be better, then eventually you will end up in Svargaloka, free of reincarnation. Buddhists believe this as well. Buddhists believe that, that death is a natural part of the life cycle, we don't believe that death is a natural part of the, of the life cycle. Anybody who tells you that does not know the scripture. 
I'm appalled at death. Aren't you appalled at death? It's not normal, it's not natural, it doesn't feel natural. It's a, it's a horrible separation. But that, my friends, is the power of sin. That sin is a killer. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has overcome that. Well, the Buddhists have decided they're gonna make it a natural part of the life cycle. They believe that death simply leads to rebirth or reincarnation. And this cycle is only broken after a soul reaches nirvana. That would be their type or their sort of paradise. If you're a Wiccan, if you believe in witchcraft and paganism, if you're, you're of, of the world, you believe in, in worshiping the trees and the plants and stones and rocks and mountains, you believe that there is an afterlife and it's called, get this, Summerland. Some of you have ever been to Summerland <laughs> in BC? Well, we're not talking about that Summerland, although I'd rather be in Summerland than here right now. But this is, their, this is their afterlife. And they believe that once a person dies, they go to Summerland and their souls rest for a while because let's face it, living on earth is, is no easy thing. It's a hard thing to live, live a life on this planet, right? If I had it to do over again, I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm quite happy to be where I'm at at this point in life and I don't wanna do it again. But here's what the Wiccans believe, that after you've gone through your life and you die, then you go to Summerland, your soul rests. You, this is the language, you recuperate from life, because <laughs> life is hard. And not only do you recuperate, but then you have to stop and reflect a little bit on your life experiences, what did you learn from this life, and then you go back and you're reincarnated carnated, and it starts all over again. I don't know, but when I think of the idea of reincarnation, I think this, is, this is, seems like such hopelessness. And not only that, but it seems so exhausting. <laughs> oh, to have to do this again, to live a life again. Well, Paul makes it clear to us that we, when we die as bodies and we are raised as bodies, but the difference is that it is a glorified body. We have to understand that when we die, we do not come back as another species or another entity. That's what it says here in verses 39 to 42. Similarly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There's no reincarnation. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and the stars each have another kind, and even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same with the resurrection of the dead. Our, heavenly, our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. So next time you someone tells you that they believe in reincarnation, you, you need to be clear that that is, that is a pagan idea. It's not biblical in any way. And understand this, your body is sacred. The Gnostics, they believe that the body by nature was evil. But God, when he created us, he said that we were good. We were very good. So here's what happens. Paul tells us that we will have or be given glorified bodies. 
Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, who is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. What I've done is that, that passage from verses 42 to 49 it compares the earthly body with the resurrection body. So let me just quickly run through this. So Paul tells us when we die, we, we are buried or sown as a decaying body. But someday, because of Christ, we will be raised and have an eternal body that will never die. How many are looking forward to an eternity where we will never die? We will never age. Some people ask the question, at what, what age will I be? If I die at 92 years old, do I, do I rise from the dead as a 92-year-old? I mean, that would suck. <laughs> so if you, <laughs> if you wanted to have a, a, a good resurrection, die young, whatever you do. No, obviously, obviously we think of our own bodies at their, at their peak performance, at their very best. It would be something like that, but far, far better. We are buried in dishonor. Uh, as a pastor, I'm, I'm always a constantly in a place where I'm with people when they're dying, coming to the end. It's a terrible state. You got all kinds of hoses and, and, and clips and wires coming in and out of your body and, and, and bags at the side of your bed to collect human waste. It's, it's a very, very horrible thing. Buried in dishonor. One, one lady in our church, I went to visit her, and she said, oh, Pastor Ellen, you shouldn't be here and seeing me like this. I said, what are you talking about? She said, I look at my hair, it's terrible. I said, well, I can fix that. I called the nurse, I said, I need something, something so I can shampoo her hair. She said, you can't shampoo my hair, you're my pastor. So, well, I'm not a hairdresser, but I know how to wash hair, I've been doing it for years, so she let me wash her hair. She was so happy after that I washed her hair. But there she was, in a state of dishonor, we all know what that's like. None of us wants to be seen looking disheveled. But the good news, folks, is that, that all of that belongs to this world. We are going to be raised in glory. And what does that mean? It means we're gonna be, we're gonna be like Christ. We're gonna be buried in weakness. Can't take care of myself anymore. Can't see, can't walk, can't move. But I'll be raised with the resurrection power. You often hear people talk about how their loved ones are, are, are running in heaven and, and skipping in the fields. Uh, however you want to see it is fine with me. But understand this, is that these bodies, no matter how hard you work at getting them up to snuff, getting them up to speed, getting into great shape, we're still going to die in weakness. One of the one of the advertisements that keeps coming up whenever I'm, I'm on YouTube is these, these uh, exercise gurus who've got perfect bodies. And, and they, they want to say, stop running. Running is not going to help you lose weight. And, and what you need to do is you need to do this and buy our product and whatever. And then you too can have a body like mine. And I think to myself, this is only lasting for a, free, for a few years, sucker. <laughs> You're spending all that time and that energy, but it, it's going to end badly. It ends badly for all of us, but the good news is if you're a Christian, it ends well. You're raised in power. 
The earthly body is buried a natural body, but your body is raised a spiritual body. What does that mean, by the way, raised a spiritual body? Because some people think that means that we'll be ghosts. This idea that, that people, people see ghosts, can I just tell you something? There's no ghosts. Okay, so if someone tells you that they saw a ghost, just say, nice try, but that's not true. Some people believe that loved ones or friends or whatever can come back to haunt us. That's not true. It's just Satan and his lies. How many know Satan is a deceiver? He's the father of lies. That's all he's doing. He's whispering in your ears, lying to you. There's no ghosts. Nobody comes back from the, from the dead. You can go to see a medium. They cannot communicate with your loved ones. That's satanic activity. Satan knows all about your life. He's been watching you and bugging you for your entire life, and he's been bugging and, 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 and tempting and hurting and harming your loved ones their entire life. He knows all about your life, and he knows how to whisper into the ears of mediums the information about your loved ones. Don't believe any of this. And sometimes it's pretty amazing what they come up with, but I can tell you it's all demonic. Don't ever, ever have anything to do with any of that. The Bible says that we are raised a spiritual body. And what does that mean? It means that we are made fit to live in the presence of Almighty God. Do you remember Moses said to God, he went up the mountain and says, God, Moses said to God, God, let me see your glory. God says, if you see my glory, you're a dead man. You'll, you won't survive it. Why is that? Because God is holy. Nothing impure, unholy can exist in the presence of a holy God. So God, to protect Adam, or uh, uh, Moses, said, said, I will... I will show you my back. That's it. That's all you get to see. When we are resurrected from the dead, we'll have spiritual bodies. We'll be able to dwell in the presence of a holy God. We'll be able to see his face. We shall behold him, for we shall be like him. It goes on to say that we have to have our, our natural body, our first body, our human body, but eventually we will have our second body. And then it says, we come from Adam of the dust. How many have heard the term ashes to ashes, dust to dust? We all return to the dust because that's what our father Adam came from. He came from the dust, he's going back to the so are you and I. But the wonderful thing is, is when we have a resurrection body, that will come from Christ. Christ will give us our new body, and it will be a body that is especially built for heaven, especially formed for heaven. This body as it is, it tells, you're gonna read, hear about this next week, it, it cannot inherit eternal life. This body is going to die, but the good news is that Jesus is giving us a body that is made, built for heaven, that will last forever. In our earthly body, we have the image of Adam. We inherited his sin, we inherited his decay. But once we die, we're resurrected and we have the image of Christ, the very image of Christ. This is our hope. This is our joy. Let me just close with this verse and then we'll pray. John, John the Evangelist, 1 John 3, 22 to three says, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. So we don't know exactly what our eternal bodies will be like. We don't know that. But 
We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So now we know what happens when we die. We know what kind of a body we have. We know that we'll not be reincarnated. We know that we will have a body that will fit, be fit for dwelling in the presence of Almighty God. We know that it will be eternal body, a body that is at our peak, peak performance, best performance, because we're gonna be like Christ. Now, Paul, John says something here that's very interesting. I want, a clo- I want to close on this thought. This knowledge that we will be resurrected, that someday we will stand before God, this knowledge, John says, purifies us. This hope of eternal life, it purifies us. What do do we mean by that? Well, it means that we have this sense of accountability. If you're an annihilationist, or if you believe, as I was telling you, uh, the so many atheists and secular humanists believe in eternal oblivion, that, that... after you die, there's, there's no existence, there's nothingness. Well, you could, you could live like hell, literally. Do whatever you want. Or as, as we read last week, eat, drink, and be merry. Because if you're gonna die, there'll be nothing after you die. What does it matter how you live now? You can, you can rob, you can steal, you can do whatever you want. But the fact that we are going to be standing before Christ someday means that it's gonna, it's gonna determine and shape the way we live now. Because someday... You and I are going to stand before Jesus and give an account for how we live, what we did, what we didn't do. Let me ask you this question. Are you ready to stand before your maker? Because you will. And it could happen at any time. There's a reason why Christianity in North America is now on a severe decline. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because we have stopped preaching and teaching that there is a judgment seat that someday we will stand before God, that someday we will give an account. Someday we will face heaven or hell. I have a cousin, grew up in the church her whole life, and she said to me, I hope, Alan, you're not one of those preachers that preaches about hell and fire and damnation. What what, what am I supposed to say? (laughs) I haven't seen you for so many years. So glad to see you. And yes, I do preach about hell. Are you going there? (laughs) You have an eternity to face. And if you believe that you're standing before Jesus someday, if you believe and understand that putting your faith in Christ is a thing that purifies you and prepares you for heaven, it's a game changer. It changes everything. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we read these words of the Apostle Paul and then again of John the Evangelist. And we are, we are confronted with the truth that we will face you someday. We will stand before you. We want to hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But we know, Lord, that if our hearts are not right with you, if we have not put on the righteousness of Christ, if we have trusted in our own righteousness, if we believe that we're good enough, we know, Father, that we face a terrifying eternity.
Some people say that we shouldn't scare people. We're not scaring people. We're talking about the glories and the wonders of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus makes it clear to us that we can have eternal life by simply putting our faith in him. Help us today, we pray, O God, to live our lives in light of eternity, knowing that whatever we say, whatever we do here and now has eternal consequences. So Father, thank you today for adopting us as your children and thank you for giving us your spirit dwelling within us, enabling us to live the life you've called us to live. And we pray now, Lord, that this hope of eternity with you will bring great purity and holiness to our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.